Hi, and welcome to Book Club, a sales enablement pro podcast. I'm Olivia Fuller. Sales enablement is a constantly evolving space, and we're here to help professionals stay up to date on the latest trends and best practices so they can be more effective in their jobs. Teaching reps new knowledge or skills is often easier said than done. The training process can be tedious, and often learning programs fail to bring about the behavior change necessary to help organizations meet their strategic goals. And this is where design thinking can really make a difference. The book Design Thinking for Training and Development walks through how to apply the human-centered design thinking methodology to learning programs to improve outcomes and make learning stick. Here to talk to us about this concept today is one of the co-authors of the book, Laura Fletcher. Laura, I'd love if you could introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit more about the book. Sure. Uh, my name is Laura Fletcher. I'm a senior program manager for leadership development at Salesforce. I think most people are familiar with Salesforce, world's number one customer relationship management or CRM platform. Um, but my role there is to develop and manage learning programs. Um, but before I came to Salesforce, I was the manager of instructional design at a company called Bottomline Performance, uh, which is where I had the opportunity to first really get in and explore design thinking and ultimately co-author this book um, with my friend Sharon Bowler, Design Thinking for Training and Development. Um, and so the book really came out of that partnership and being able to experiment with my team and try some new things, see what worked, see what didn't. Um, and so I would say the book is really a documentation of our experience and um, where we found best practice and where we found sort of cautionary tales so that we could help our fellow practitioners um, incorporate design thinking and have some quick success with that process. Great. Well, we're so excited to have you here to dive into those topics a little bit deeper. And as you mentioned, your book really centers on how to apply design thinking methodology to the development of learning experiences for employees. So I'd love if you could just tell our audience, what is design thinking and why is it important to consider in the context of training programs? Yeah, it's a good question because I think as you start to get out there in Google land, it can feel a little bit ambiguous. Um, so if I distill it down to its core, design thinking is really a human-centered approach to problem solving. That's it. It really is designed to prioritize understanding the context and environment of the end user. And because of that, design thinking became really mainstream and popular within the product development space. But it has obvious application to solutioning in almost any field, training included. Um, what made it really attractive to us at Bottom Line Performance as we started exploring it was noticing how absent learners typically were from the design and development process. And design thinking pulls learners into the thick of things from the very beginning, keeps them um, integrated throughout the process. So I think what makes it really well suited to learning and development um, is, you know, in the book, we talk about finding the sweet spot, which is balancing 
what the learner needs and what the organization needs and also the constraints of the project. Like we think about it as sort of a triple Venn diagram. Uh, and so seeing this in action, uh, we did some empathy mapping with a pharmaceutical sales rep a few years ago. And we noticed that this persona that we created, they were in the car half of the day, they were working mostly on an iPad, but as new training initiatives rolled out, those often defaulted to e-learning courses that were optimized for laptop. And so, you know, as practitioners, we know there's a lot of advantages to using e-learning. It checks a lot of boxes, like makes it easy for us to meet accessibility standards, makes it easy to track completion. But those are very organizational-based needs. And they're kind of at odds with the needs of our mobile-first field-based learner. So those, those kinds of initiatives we can see very easily. They're not hitting the sweet spot once we start to uncover that learner's context. Um, but at the end of the day, ultimately the organization's goal is for those field reps to implement whatever's being trained. Like that's why we're here doing what we do. And so when we take that time to uncover details about the context where the reps are gonna be learning and applying the new information, it helps us be able to make more win-win sweet spot decisions about the content and the format that we include in training solutions. And I think that just on, you know, when I, you just say that, it doesn't seem like a big deal, right? So one format decision, Laura, so what, we put it in a podcast or a mobile game instead of a, an e-learning course. But when you start to think about the learning journey, similar to the way you would think about a customer journey. And you start to appreciate that just like that customer, our learner can opt out of a learning journey at any time, it does prioritize that learning experience design. So as you start to optimize the format and you start to improve usability and you strip out irrelevant content, one by one, those improvements remove obstacles and annoyances that impede a person's ability uh, or that rep's ability to engage with the content and not only add up to a much better learner experience, but also help you achieve better outcomes. So it's that sweet spot mentality that I think really is attractive to us in the learning and um, development space. Fantastic. And you mentioned there are some problems that you're seeing with some of the other formats that you were encountering. So I want to dive a little bit more into those. What are some of the common mistakes that you've seen companies make in the design of training and development programs? And how can design thinking help avoid or overcome some of those mistakes? Yeah, I mean, that's what it boils down to is like, how is design thinking going to improve what I'm able to achieve? And I mentioned thinking about learning journeys very similar to the way that we think about customer journeys. I think marketers spend a lot of time considering, you know, how does my customer find out about my product? What's their buying experience like? How do I keep them engaged with the company to build loyalty or frankly, to build sustained behavior over time, which is very similar to what we're trying to achieve. So um, in contrast though, Learning designers, at least in the past, I think we've tended to focus on the learning event. So the course or the workshop or the thing, right? We spend so much time thinking about how to optimize the thing. 
that then we tend to give insufficient attention to what happens before the event and even more important, what happens after that thing. And that's really problematic because for example, you know, I can create the world's most gorgeous and, and informative reference resources. But if I have to put those on an LMS where the experience is not great, so maybe it requires a lengthy login or I have to search or I've got to go through multiple click paths to navigate to what I want. I mean, I know that would demotivate me from trying to access those. And so it really devalues what I've worked so hard to create. Um, and so if the if the pre-event interactions can make or break my motivation, and then the event uh, is able to either build awareness or build some initial skill, then it's what happens after a learning solution or event that really decides whether my learner is actually gonna perform that behavior on the job. And so again, I, can, I could create the flashiest product launch event the world has ever known. Um, and, and maybe I've done a really thorough job in planning this. I've created talk tracks that could you know, sell sawdust to a lumber mill. But if reps leave that event completely energized and then they get back on the job and they don't have great customers to pitch to, or their managers can't answer questions about the new product, or it just turns out they figured out they can make better commission just selling the simpler stuff in their portfolio. Without support, reinforcement, continued practice opportunities, those are all points at which they may opt out of that learning journey. And so the things that happen before and after a learning event, I think as an industry are our most underutilized opportunities to build motivation and retention and sustained performance. So I, I think about not so much about like errors that people are making as much as missed opportunities, I think. And when I, when I started thinking about my role more in terms of designing this learning journey and less like designing an event, speaking for myself, I feel like I noticed a few things. So number one, I was forced to understand my customer or my learner on a much deeper level than I ever needed to just to design an event for them, right? It goes from just accepting content to thinking about what is this experience to get me from they know they don't even know that they need this to they're sustaining this behavior consistently. Um, another thing I realized was I really have started designing much more for the points of need and much less for formal training experiences like, like full workshops. Because when I start to think about all the touch points that are necessary to get from you know point A to point Z, a lot of times you realize that formal workshop or that, that big event or that big thing doesn't move the needle as much as those, you know, tiny nudges along the way. So that's definitely been something that I've noticed changing in my own practice. And then the third thing that I would say it has changed for me to kind of recognize some of these missed opportunities is that I gained a much greater appreciation for all of the non-training factors 
that influence performance. So I think about things like the role of manager reinforcement or incentivization factors, or frankly, de-incentivization factors, or process inefficiencies, all these things that are affecting people's ability to perform. And those then become either assets or hindrances to the learning experience that I'm trying to create. So all of those things now I am able to take into account as I'm designing the learning journey and focusing much less on just building a, a pretty, pretty thing, right? Definitely. And you brought up so many great points there. But one thing that you mentioned is really thinking about the customer when you're designing these things, which in this sense is your learner. And, you know, you also mentioned at the start of this that the key to design thinking is being human centered. So what are some ways that practitioners can involve learners in the design of training programs to ensure that learning experiences resonate with them? Yeah. So one point of clarification that I'll make is I think when you first start to read about design thinking, you'll hear a lot about empathy or empathizing. And it's, I think sometimes there is a misconception that this process is very touchy-feely. You know, we're all talking about feelings and how did you feel about that learning exercise? And in the book, Sharon and I very intentionally referred to the process as gaining perspective rather than empathizing. Um, the act of collecting insight into a learner's context as one critical piece of the design. So to your question about like, what are some ways that you do collect that insight or uncover some of those, um, some of those contextual factors, I will say if time and travel were never an issue, and I know they are, but let's just pretend <laughs> for a minute that we live in a world where that's not a problem. I would always want to start a project with a chance to observe my target audience on the job. So I'd want to experience their work environment. I'd want to see when, where, and how they're actually performing the skill in question and see how, how do you learn things on the job when you have to learn a new skill? How do you usually do that? Um, I did an observation once in a mining facility where between the ambient noise and the required ear protection because of that noise level, I couldn't hear a thing. And so I, I was listening to my guide on the worksite, basically lip reading and realizing, you know, if I were a new hire in this environment, a misunderstanding because I couldn't hear well could just have dire consequences. And I know that's a very extreme example to prove a point, but today I think a much more common equivalent is mask wearing, right? So when everyone is wearing masks, how does that environmental or contextual change affect how customer facing roles are performed? How is that performer then working around that new constraint? Another benefit of using observation as a technique is that you get to see firsthand how people's tools and processes are impacting how they work. And so I think about a university admin staff that I worked with, they were using what had to be at least 10-year-old computers and software. And those challenges are integrated as part of their day-to-day -day reality. But if I'm creating training for them, you know, half a world away, it's invisible to me as the designer. So observation gives you so many advantages that you just were blind to without doing something like that. 
Now, I said that was if travel and time were not major constraints, and the fact is they are. So while observation isn't always a reality or a possibility, there's two methods that we love for uncovering some of that context that we really talk about at length in the book. And those are empathy maps and experience maps. And like I said, we go into this in depth. We give you really step-by-step -step instructions for using those, point out some of the best practices that we've recognized, including virtual delivery. Um, but with today kind of being very restricted on the amount of travel and face-to-face -face, um, interaction that we have, there are really good virtual tools out there that make those two activities, empathy maps and experience maps, really easy to use. So I think about something like Miro that has built-in templates already for empathy mapping and experience mapping. Um, but to be honest, in a low-tech version, I've found that using a table in a Google Doc actually works really well because it does pretty well in, in letting multiple people work in fairly real time, seeing where each other are uh, typing at any one time, and it just makes it easy to collaborate. So lots of tools to choose from um, in order to collaborate that way. But whether you're using an observation or interviews or experience mapping, all of that work is in order to gain perspective that's gonna inform, like I said, the format and the content of your training design. And so when you're transitioning from design into development, one of the other great and probably underutilized methods for incorporating learners is to do some quick and dirty prototyping and get them involved in that activity so you can get early feedback about what seems like it's gonna work best in your design. And when I say prototype, again, to clarify, this can even be as simple as a sketch on a whiteboard. I think we often go a little bit too far in prototyping, thinking it has to be more like a first draft than a literal prototype. But my gauge for myself is that I wanna feel completely unattached to a prototype for two reasons. You know, if, I, if I've gone too far with a prototype, it starts to feel like it's gonna hurt to throw it away. And if I get to that point, then I'm less likely to get totally honest feedback from my stakeholders. Um, if it looks like it's very polished, then they're gonna be much less likely to offer as critical of feedback as they might otherwise have. But the other thing is I wanna make sure I'm not inadvertently trying to hold on to anything that I'm attached to in case it's really not working and I'm you know, the sticky wicket. So if you involve learners at the start of the project, doing observations, doing empathy mapping, and then you also seek their feedback through the development process, doing things like prototyping or other review cycles, you have a lot more confidence that the solution and the experience you're creating is hitting that sweet spot. And in putting the learner at the center of learning design, how can practitioners also balance the interests of the business to ensure programs also help achieve leadership's strategic goals? That's really what it's all about, right? At the end of the day, that's why we're doing what we're doing. And that's where that idea of the sweet spot comes in. This, you know, balancing learner needs, organizational needs, and project constraints. But honestly, it's really difficult to over-prioritize the learner's needs over the business. 
And that's probably because training requests don't usually originate from our audience, right? In our line of work, the genesis of most of our training projects is with that business stakeholder. And so any weight that we're giving to the learner, we're doing that as more of a counterbalance. Um, and so it's hard to go overboard. Now, that said, measuring outcomes of training is vitally important. And this is something that should be planned into the project starting from the very beginning. I will say, you know, a project that, or a solution that doesn't solve a real problem has no hope of hitting that sweet spot because of course that, that involves having to meet business need and business needs are focused on behavior change that impacts the bottom line in some way um, or cuts cost in some way. So it has to be based in that real problem designed to meet a real need and we have to measure in order to ensure that happens. So while design thinking doesn't have a lot to say about measurement, this is where we can look to best practice from the learning industry and pull in that insight and perspective. So we all know measuring training outcomes is really difficult. And even if you have strong data points like sales numbers, it feels very concrete, but it's still hard to pinpoint what exactly is attributable to training and really what's, um, what's caused by other environmental factors. And so my best suggestion as we try to prove the value of solutions to the business is to pilot new training initiatives using kind of that experiment group control group model. So if you carefully select a group that's really gonna represent your target audience, so for example, you're not just pulling like the super motivated people that always sign up for everything. But if you've got that, that fairly representative pilot group, then when you look and compare data between that pilot group and the general population, it helps you be reasonably confident that differences that you see in their results can be attributed to a training program. I would say, just to editorialize, my two cents about evaluation is that we need to stop being afraid of what the results are gonna be. And I say that as somebody that of course is not in love with getting critical feedback any more than the next person. But if I have something on the shelf that's irrelevant or that's not useful, I wanna know about that because the thought of you know, having large numbers of people consume training that's a waste of their time or that's going to compromise the credibility of future training designs that I publish, I think that's much worse than finding out that a pilot program didn't meet its objectives after all. And I kind of have a motto that I say in my head about, you know, today is the cheapest possible day to fail. And so assuming that we can't go back to yesterday and, and make changes in the past, you know, today is always the day, even if your changes are a little bit painful, it's always the best to make those sooner than later so that you don't have solutions out there that are doing more harm than good. I love that motto. And you also emphasize that learning is not a one-time event. And you've said that throughout this conversation as well. So how can sales enablement practitioners help to reinforce learning concepts beyond training sessions to ensure that they stick long-term? Yeah, I really hope that this is what the learning experience design conversation gravitates toward, this idea of a learning journey. 
And I think once you get into the habit of designing journeys over just events, you almost start to have a collection or a bouquet of potential reinforcement options that you can pull from um, and reuse quite a bit. So there's kind of a spectrum, I think. And so when you think about reinforcing more awareness level topics on the low end of the spectrum, where it's really more about the learner just deciding to do something. It's not that they need a particular skill, it's that you're just trying to trigger a behavior. Reinforcement could be as simple as some follow-up emails, checking in and saying, hey, learner, it's been a week since our workshop. Did you do the action item you committed to? Something like that. But as you move down the spectrum towards more complex skills, then just like your customer journey, it's going to take those multiple touch points to address different points of need that are going to evolve over time. So for example, you know, what's your learner going to need the very first time they run into a non-textbook example? Or what happens when they start to lose steam? How are you going to share success stories? Or how do you bridge the gap between when they first learn a concept and when they actually have an opportunity to apply it? And so, you know, I mentioned having a greater appreciation for all the factors that influence performance. And one thing that I've started to um, really appreciate in the design phase is that not all reinforcement, and frankly, probably the majority of reinforcement is not about providing another thing. It's not about providing another resource. A big part of reinforcement is tapping into the environmental factors, the social factors, the systemic or organizational factors. Um, that are present in the learner's context. So I think about things like, what is our manager's role in the learning journey? Or how am I going to make sure my learners have the best tools for the job? I see learners that have the tools and learners that don't. How can we we, um, raise that equity for tool access? Um, I also look at things differently when it comes to invisible obstacles, or I mentioned things that incentivize or de-incentivize performance, you know, where can I remove or mitigate some of those um, de-incentivization factors so that, you know, they're not compromised in trying, you know, I'm not making it harder for them to perform the skill that I want them to. And so when we start to consider all of the reinforcement factors that aren't just another thing, it really brings it back full circle to this idea about gaining perspective. Uh, The knowledge of the audience's realities, if there's one thing that I can leave people with, it's that having that understanding and uncovering that context is a little bit like the key to the magic garden, right? It, It can help to unlock understanding and strategies that make you much more able to communicate and connect and engage with your learners far more effectively and in doing so to realize better organizational results as well. Fantastic. Well, Laura, thank you so much again for taking the time to share your insights with our audience today. I learned so much from you. Thank you, Olivia. And to our audience, thanks for listening. For more insights, tips, and expertise from sales enablement leaders, visit salesenablement.pro.
If there's something you'd like to share or a topic you'd like to learn more about, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you.